Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SUD show, where I, your host Sean, talk about anything and everything I find interesting. Today's show, we'll be going over all the different TARDIS interiors through the years. But first, the news. We will start with Formula One, I think. So, what's been there to Formula One? So, a few car launches: Alpine V Car, hate that name. Aston Martin, Ferrari, Mercedes, and McLaren. I think Red Bull is going to be later on. By the time of recording, we haven't seen the Red Bull car yet. Uh, the British GP has been confirmed to be on the calendar until 2034. Doesn't make any particular note of it being Silverstone, but the fact that we're going to remain in Britain for another 10 years is good. If it's at Silverstone, good, because Silverstone is great. Uh, there's been some talk about who's going to be replacing Lewis at Mercedes. Uh, what bizarrely, one of the main rumors is one of the guys that Mercedes have put in Formula Two could just get like go straight into Mercedes, which I just I don't buy for a second. Um, and if I was George Russell, I'd be pretty miffed if that was the case. To be fair, um, but the other the other suggestion, the main suggestion, which is apparently Total's Plan B, is that Alonso will go to Mercedes for twenty twenty five, um, which would be pretty cool, I I would say, and then. Obviously, Mercedes would put their young driver, if he does well in Formula 2, into Williams for a couple of years. Probably alongside, I mean, I'd say probably, definitely alongside Alex Albon. Um, and unless Logan Sargent has the best year of his life, I, I, don't, I don't see him stick around in Formula 1. Same as Mick Schumacher, I just don't think either of them are particularly good, really. But the actual cars themselves, then, so... As I said, we have now got our look at the Alpine, uh, which we'll have a look at first. A lot of carbon fibre. Um, it was kind of cool last year to see Mercedes go for go for the carbon fibre look, but I think the fact that everyone's kind of cottoned on, oh, well, if we don't need to paint the car, I mean, that saves weight. So everyone's now kind of jumped on that bandwagon, which I don't, I don't like, I have to say. I, I, I kind of agree with uh, a portion of the fandom that, that thinks that the FIA is probably going to have to step in and say, look, a certain amount of your car needs to be painted. Um, but, you know, the good thing with the Alpine, you know, it's, it's blue and pink. That's not exactly going to get mixed in with anything else, as long as they keep the pink. I think they're doing a double livery, as they do every year. A couple of races is pure pink, and then the blue and pink merge. Um, as for the car itself, I have noticed a lot of... A lot of the cars this year, their the tip of the front nose is a lot like closer to the edge. Some of them have, have pulled it back a little bit. Some of them have gone right to the edge. So there's to see which one of those is makes the big difference. Um, the front wing end plates look. I mean, they look nice and curvy. I'm not a particularly technical man. It's one of those. You know, if you want to know exactly what they are, what they're all like, I'd highly recommend Ted Kravitz, um, who works for Sky Sports F1, as he is. He is. He's phenomenal. He's brilliant at breaking this stuff down. So basically, this is going to be, what do the liveries look like? Can I see any major changes? And that's kind of it. And uh, interesting to see the wing mirrors have been incorporated a little bit as well. Uh, yeah, fantastic. So let's have a little look at the sideways view. And I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of them have gone, oh, they've actually gone quite, their side pods kind of, they go down quite quickly. So obviously, you've got the, you've got the little inlet, which has been popularized by Mercedes, although it wasn't exactly overly successful. And then it just kind of comes down quite quickly. Now, I imagine if we look at the top of that car, it's going to, we're going to see that they've got those big dips 
like between the between the chassis and that yeah huge dip my goodness that is aggressive so the side pods obviously they've got the little bit of they've got the air intake which goes kind of around like a little bulb shape but it's almost as if someone's like take if you imagine it being like a little toy car it's like someone's pinching where the driver would sit and there's like two big dips there. I'll be interested to see if that's kind of copied anywhere else. I say copied, obviously. They're they're all, you know, that's what they are. Right. The V carb. I mean, it looks nice. It looks like a looks like a classic tour also, which is good. Um yeah. Pretty pretty boring front way. It, it just looks like a pretty boring car. The sort of car that, you know, should have finished last in the championship last year. And will probably be fighting for last place this year. Um, I think Visa Cash at Red Bull is just the most shocking name in the world. Uh, it looks looks fine. Looks fine. Doesn't look like anything guard breaking. But well, Toro also is owned by Red. Uh, sorry. Well, V Carb is owned by Red Bull. It's never going to be anything guard breaking. The Aston Martin's the first one to really buck the trend of those front noses. So the tip of its front nose isn't on the last uh, like slot of the front wing. It's on the second last. Which I find quite interesting. They're, they're, they're the first team that looks like they've done that. They haven't gone quite as aggressive with their side pods. Uh, the floor looks like it's got a fair amount of detail on it as well. Um, yeah, the Aston Martin. I mean, also what I like about the Aston Martin is it's very clearly Aston Martin. It is nice. It is green. It's coloured in. It's a beautiful looking car. Will it be as quick as last year's at the beginning? We'll see. I think... Picking order, pick order this year is going to be pretty tough to predict. I mean, if you're going on the back end of last year, it's, you know, Red Bull out in front, McLaren not that far behind, uh, Mercedes and Ferrari squabbling over third place, and then Aston Martin a distant fifth. But, uh, I mean, that's going on the back end of last year. The cars are completely different, so who knows what it will be. Speaking of which, the McLaren, uh, again, they've gone for something similar to the Aston, so they've got the – they don't have their nose right at the bottom – kind of rung of the front wing they've got it on the second bottom uh actually they're they're not wildly dissimilar to the aston and the mclaren interesting maybe they'll both be pretty good again that well they've kind of gone for slightly more aggressive side pods as well okay okay interesting i like it i like it it's good good stuff right Last but not least, no, not last but least, there's still a couple more to go. So we've got Mercedes and Ferrari. Uh, Mercedes again, so it looks like it's just the Alpine and the V-Carb that have got that, the the front, the tip of the nose on the edge of the front wing. Mercedes have gone for the second rung up as well. Uh, their side pods obviously nowhere near as aggressive as they have been in recent years. They've kind of got a nice blend of the silver turquoise and black, and they've got the red Ineos over the... Uh, engine air intake as well. Their rear wing looks a bit boring in comparison to some others, as does their front wing. Maybe that's the way to do it. Like, just because it doesn't look as interesting doesn't mean it isn't as fast. But uh, that looks, that's, that's, hmm. That's not the most aggressive, impressive looking car I've ever seen in the world. And certainly not from Mercedes. Now, the Ferrari. <clears throat> um, by some way, they tipped to be the potential challenger this year. I still think it's going to be the McLaren. Especially now that I've had a look at all these. Again, Ferrari, they've got quite a big step between the tip of their nose and the edge of their front wing. The they've gone very kind of bog standard with their with their side pods actually they look they look as generic as side pods used to back in early 2000s rear wings sign very vibrant red which is good the floor the floor has got a lot of stuff going on which is kind of where you want it to be i suppose but that doesn't look i mean again this is one of those 
they could just be unveiling the base model. What tends to happen is they do the unveiling and then the car that appears at testing looks different. And then, you know, their car that appear that will appear on Barbie will be wildly different as well. So you always got to take these with a bit of a pinch of salt. Realistically, they're just livery uh, reveals. A couple of slots in the in the side plates of the front wing, though, which is quite interesting. I think out of all of these, I think the Aston and the McLaren look the best. But obviously, we'll see what Red Bull pull out. Um, could be Mercedes and Ferrari fighting for fourth and fifth. I think a Mercedes don't kind of. I mean, they've just they've just announced that Total's going to be staying for a while, so. I don't know. I don't know. Be interesting to see what goes on there anyway. Cool. So that's kind of all the Formula One news that's kind of happened in the past week or so. So we'll move on to Eurovision news, the second part of my trifecta. So we've had a few Eurovision entries selected. Italy, Latvia, and Finland are the three that uh, were selected on Saturday. So Finland's entry, Windows 95 man with no rules. Uh, quite contentious. It's It's kind of dividing people. Certainly dividing people in in, fin- in Finland as well, uh, but it completely dominated the televote, which is you know important, as did Korea last year. Um, I think it's fun. I think it's the it's the sort of mentalness that this year's Eurovision was kind of missing. Everyone's gone for interesting and you know not cookie, but like Ireland's end, for example, which is still my favorite this year so far. As you know, it's it's different. People have gone for different this year. So the three entries that I'm about to say have kind of bucked that trend and brought Eurovision back to Eurovision in a way. So Finland's is absolutely like balls to the wall insane. Latvia's is nice bog standard ballad, sang really, really well. And Italy's is it's an absolute corker, actually. Italy's is an absolute corker. It's the first woman they've sent in a long, long time. Um, I think it's just 2016, actually. 17, 18, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, Moniskin had a woman in it. But, like, uh, solo female artist, first time since 2016, I think. Um, and the first San Remo female winner in goodness knows how long. And the song's brilliant. And she performs it. I mean, I'm not overly keen on how she performs it in terms of just her physicality. I think hopefully she gets an actual choreographer for Eurovision. And the staging will obviously change a lot. But the song's really good. She sings it really well. It's properly catchy. It's already got you know, millions and millions of views on YouTube and Spotify. And it's, 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 Italy always do well at Eurovision. They are literally the most successful country uh, pretty much since they came back, although they do only have one victory. And I have a, like a rolling five years of how many points each country have had. And Italy's been at the top since 2017 or 18, I think. So they've, they are regularly, they're all they're almost if they're not winning they're in the top five they're almost never out of the top five um top 10 especially even when they send something which is complete garbage like BDVD. <clears throat> yeah they do a good job so yeah i think italy will do well this year i think finland either it will not qualify and it will go down as a massive misstep or it will qualify and it'll do really well who knows uh latvia's there is some belief that latvia will actually qualify with it i don't know if they will but uh, it depends. You know what? You never know. You never know. Um, so, obviously, with Eurovision being a big part of my life, along with Formula One and Doctor Who, which are the three prongs of my trifecta, uh, it was announced today that 400 celebrities uh, in, the, in, in the profession, I guess, in the entertainment industry, uh, signed an open letter in regards to the calls for Israel to be banned in Eurovision. <laughs> 
Now, my own personal opinions on that aside, the letter, it's not great, it's not, it's not written very well, it's very much, you know, we shouldn't be judging people just because they're from Israel and people from Israel should be allowed to go and do X, Y, and Z. I mean, which, fair. Do you know what? Absolutely fair point. So why is Russia banned? Why are Russians not allowed to... Why are we persecuting all Russians from international sporting events? Do you know what I mean? It's a different... Arguably, it's a different situation. In terms of Eurovision, if it's one rule for Russia, the rule has to apply to Israel. Israel's retaliation to Hamas's attack on the 7th of October has been four months solid, not including the history of the two countries, which I will not get into here because this is not that podcast, but the retaliation has been absolutely ferocious and similar to Russia's ferocious attack on Ukraine, both coming from bizarre places. I don't believe Israel should be in Eurovision this year purely because Russia isn't. And if Russia isn't, Israel shouldn't be either. That's the end of that. Um, if you disagree with that, absolutely fine. If you agree with that, absolutely fine. Uh, what's the wonderful thing about the world? Eight billion people in it, and we all will have different nuanced opinions on it, of course. Um, if you don't know anything about what's happening in Israel or you know why this is, why this is a big thing, um, there are a lot of YouTube videos, uh, and, you know, a fair, a fair, not a fair amount of research. I think a little bit of research goes a long way with the Israel-Palestine war. Um, I think the important thing is a lot of people seem to think it all started on the seventh of October, twenty twenty-three. It didn't. It started after World War Two. Uh, this, this sort of the 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 fight between the two of them has been going on for almost eighty years, and that that's the important thing to to keep in mind with all of that. But yes, I think Israel always send cracking entries to Eurovision, as did Russia. So it'd be a shame to not have Israel there. However, if Russia's not there, Israel shouldn't be there either. So moving on to Doctor Who then, before we get cracking with the main podcast, little bit of news. So we've had, I think literally just today, actually, Maisie Williams say that she would be up for returning as me, which would be really cool, actually. Don't really have much else to say with that. I think it'd be brilliant if Maisie Williams uh, came back. I think she was, she wasn't great in her second episode. But when she came back in Face the Raven and uh, Hellbent, she was great. Also, David Tennant has talked about the very the surprisingly persistent rumours that the 14th Doctor could pop up all the time. And I do say surprising because the whole point of, of that arc was the Doctor stopped. He stopped. He got his reward and he stopped and now he just relaxes and you know he can just do the enjoying part of of being the doctor because the other doctor is going and doing the doctory parts and i i found i found it bizarre afterwards when people even some even some of my friends were saying oh i can't wait for david Tennant to come back oh i bet he'll pop up and do this and i'm like no he won't why would he like why would he the point david Tennant makes is why would he, in the sense of, well, why would the fourteenth Doctor turn up on her, like turn up to this thing, and help out? Why wouldn't it be Patrick Troughton's Doctor? 
which is a fair point. Why wouldn't it be the fifth or the or the tenth Doctor? Why just because he's there doesn't mean he's going to turn up and do anything? Because why would he? The Doctor's got it. Also, you know, he's he's now just chilling. He's just chilling, having a good old time with Donna and Wilf and and everyone. I think obviously the fact that Rose is coming back next year does. And Mel as well does add fuel to the fire almost of well if they're coming back, then Donna can come like in a in a yeah it's one of those where I think we'll probably get references because Russell's not daft he will, there will probably be you know oh how is he oh he's fine oh that's good how's Donna oh she's fine great how are you how's life here we are at unit and shit his doctor will just you know get on with it um I saw. Uh, a, a, a YouTube short of uh, just shoot his doctor flirting. I forgot just how outrageous he is. He's wonderful, especially when he's talking to to Cherry Sunday, and she's like, "Oh, I'm a tasty treat." And she goes, mm, "Cherry Sunday." <laughs> oh, I love him. I love him. If I haven't, uh, I, mean, I probably haven't yet. Uh, Shooty has has marched to my in one episode. He has marched to the top of my list of favorite doctors. In a way that, in a way that no other doctor has ever ever managed that I've watched to just, I've never seen a doctor nail it. Episode one, and I mean nail. It. I mean he nailed it in the twenty minute cameo he had in the giggle. Let alone the hour that he had for Church on Ruby Road. To, and he just smashes it out the park in a way that I, I just. The last time I can remember an actor nailing it, nailing their version of the Doctor that quickly, that early on. I think it's happened realistically. Well, I mean, I can, to be fair, I can think of three other examples. I can think 4, 9, and 12. But 12 evolved. But Peter Capaldi obviously nailed it because he is just one of the best actors in the world. Eccleston nailed it. I think Eccleston absolutely nailed it in Rose. Absolutely nailed it. And Tom Baker nails it in Robot. Absolutely nails it. I think every other Doctor finds their feet. David Tennant included. For I mean, I'm not I'm not really including War Doctor. I'm not including the 14th Doctor in that. Uh, ironically, I think the 13th Doctor was at her best in her first episode. I'll, I think a lot of Doctors sometimes are at their best in their first episode. Yeah, anyway, do you know what? All that's a discussion for another time. I think it's time now to get into the main part of today's podcast, the TARDIS interiors through the years. So, a little bit different to what I did last week. I don't have any Wikipedia articles up. I've literally just got the pictures up. I'm going to have a look. Just going to talk about kind of my, my thoughts on them, my memories of them, if I have any particular memories. Starting, of course, with the very first TARDIS interior console room used by the first and second Doctors, respectively. And it is gorgeous. It is a beautiful, beautiful set. It is huge. It is. It absolutely encapsulates the idea of bigger on the inside in a way that I don't think anything else visually possible could have done. I the black and white aesthetic works really well. The, the the roundels are so good at just adding extra depth. I think there is a point where uh you've got like a a, a roundel wall, TARDIS doors, roundel wall, corner, roundel wall, and then it's like wallpaper. 
and then like the TARDIS scanner, and it's that, that that's that's a bit of a shame. But if you've ever seen an adventure in space and time, and if you haven't, I'd highly recommend you watch it. It's uh, it's it's a testament to Verity Lambert's. What does what does what does Sipping Demon call it? Piss and vinegar. Yeah, <clears throat> that you know she got this. She got this set built and got it beautiful and spent a lot of money on it, and you can tell. And it is the best part about like very very early Doctor Who in terms of design. The console itself, of course, we have our traditional and long-standing hexagonal console with six separate sides of different dials and buttons and. What not Hartnell um was very keen that you know on the continuity of 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 how the TARDIS console worked. So if a director ever asked him to do something different, he'd be like, no, 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 that's that's the wrong switch. And the kids all know that. And I love that. I absolutely love that he would go, right, well, this is the switch that opens the door. So that's the switch that's gonna do this, and that one does this, and if I twist that, that does that. And if a director went, Well, can you do that? He'd say, Absolutely not. The kids will notice. If I do this and the door doesn't open, there'll be an outrage. It'll ruin the magic. He was just, for all of his crotchetiness and, you know, his, his shall we say, lack of patience behind the scenes, I think his, his realisation eventually that he had captured the hearts of children nationwide I think I think it, it just made him such a happy man, and then obviously because of that, you know, he came back ten years later um, for the three doctors, and oh yeah, he's just he's he's wonderful man, wonderful man, and I think wonderful doctor as well. I actually, recently because they put the Moloch on iPlayer in November, and if you haven't started watching the classic stuff, give it a bash. It's brilliant. I did get through all the Hartnell stuff pretty quickly, and what was interesting to me was. It only takes a season or two to start for him to start layering in what a lot of people attribute Patrick Troughton for. The kind of, not clowniness, but just almost the kind of alien irreverence, which Tom Baker again got very famous for. It's all there. It is all there. Hartnell does it all. It's very good. Like one of my one of my absolute favorite scenes is in the Time Meddler, um, where it's revealed that. Stephen, who was in the previous episode of The Chase, uh, has kind of like hide, not hijacked, what's the word, strawweight on the TARDIS, and the Doctor's like, who the hell are you? And the Doctor and Vicky are trying to convince Stephen that you know, yeah, we've travelled in time and space and Stephen's going, ha ha ha, right, fine, can I get out now? <clears throat> and they're kind of looking around the TARDIS and he's like, what is going on? Like, what is this? What is that? And the Doctor kind of shuts him up and goes, right, this is the TARDIS console room, this is this, uh, that is a chair. That's a grandfather clock with a panda on it. This is the dematerialization control. Do you ha it's all sheer poetry. Now shut the f up. Let's get on with it. I mean, the time meddler itself. If you've, I am going to do a podcast at some point in the future, probably relatively soon, about episodes I would watch or episodes I would recommend for people who have never seen the classic series before. The time meddler for me is absolute top tier. It's William Hartnell at his absolute best. Ironically, he's not there for two episodes. Uh, it's the first instance of another Time Lord in the show. Uh, it introduces a new companion in a really compelling and interesting way. Oh, it's, but the Time Meddler is an absolutely sensational piece of it, as is the Aztecs, actually. The Aztecs is another one that allows Hartnell to really kind of stretch what he can do. Yeah, I think Hartnell's, I think Hartnell's absolutely brilliant. Um, 
we're on a tangent there. Uh, they're all brilliant in their own way. They're all brilliant in their own way. But yes, the interior, the interior then, absolutely beautiful, gorgeous, huge, everything you could ever possibly want. And then we come to the third Doctor, and that's when the original console does finally get a little bit of... Um, of love. So at the end of season six, the Time Lords put the second Doctor on trial for crimes against, you know, doing star, you meddled. So we're going to exile you to Earth where you keep going and middling and we're going to regenerate you. Haha. Or so the story goes. There is such a theory called the Season 6B theory, which stipulates that the Time Lords didn't exile him straight away. They actually got the second Doctor to work for them for a while. Uh, and then when they were kind of done with all the things they wanted the second Doctor doing, then they regenerated him and sent him to Earth. It's a fun theory. Uh, I'll probably cover that at some point as well. So the console itself then, we don't have an interior as much as we have the actual six-sided console itself getting an update because uh, it kind of sits outside the TARDIS for a while. I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember why. Oh, right, no, it's because, yeah, because they've, they've removed the, the Third Doctor's ability to travel in time, which I don't entirely... <clears throat> they needed a reason for him to stay on Earth, fine. So I think he's got the con. He's got the actual unit outside of the TARDIS because he's trying to fix it, isn't he? Something like that. Anyway, console itself, not black and white anymore. It's a bit green, sweat lime green, and looks a bit old and clunky. And I think the the, the switch from black and white to color doesn't do the the console design any favors because now it looks very dated. It looks very seventies. I'm sure for the time it was you know brilliant and wonderful and. Whatnot, but it, I don't know. to me it looks a bit it looks a bit of its time and of its era whereas the the black and white ones look better to be fair once it gets inside the actual tardis um uh, and we have the rindles back and we've got that wonderful wall of rindle wallpaper uh now the, the room itself looks a little smaller well, it could just be like shooting angles, could be the actual set is smaller. It does look very similar to the original set, though, I have to say. But the console does get another little update where I think for a start, just being inside the, the console room itself and just having the bright white lights does actually help a lot. The time water in the middle has got a couple of different colors on it, which light up and uh, you know do, do their own thing, which makes it look a bit more interesting. Looking at the six panels individually, it looks a little bit more sci-fi-y. Eh, but not, like, you know, sensationally over the top. Um, there was a little roundel change in the Time Monster, I think it was, where the roundels uh, kind of stop being inwards, if that makes sense. They're not like, they've not like they've cut holes out. It's now like, they're they're like they're like speakerphones, and it looks horrible. It looks absolutely horrible, but uh, hey ho, that kind of sticks for a little while. And then I think the next big jump is gonna be. Oh no, yeah, we've just got another batch of this. And then yeah, I think in the the time monsters when we see the masters Tardis as well, which is basically the same, just the time motor's a bit different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of it. Again, I mean, it's it's not great. I don't like that one at all. 
But uh, it doesn't stick around for too long because come season 13, we have the fourth Doctor come along. And... Wonderful. We have... <clears throat> the... Glorious TARDIS interior here. With the roundels, some of them filled in, some of them not. Console panel has gone from being that weird lime green to being white again. White suits it. I think it needs it. Um, apparently, and I didn't know this. Uh, Third Doctor's first season, the TARDIS interior wasn't shown on TV during the Fourth Doctor's debut season. Did not know that. Makes sense, though, because the entire season is, is them hopping about a lot. It's a fun season, season 12. Very interesting. Very, um... Here's a new Doctor. Here's some companions. Here's a lot of old monsters. Have fun. Anyway, yeah. So the, ne the next uh, the next kind of console just looks... I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing to scream home about. It just looks like a slightly more updated version of the third Doctor's one. Now, the one that was used for season 14 is one of my absolute favorites it is beautiful absolutely beautiful it's called the secondary console room and it is wooden it has got a wooden aesthetic it is just the most gorgeous like victorian gothic design uh it is oh gosh i wish i could just show you it um the main console itself, they've still got the hexagonals, but everything's closed up. So it's not like you, there's buttons and dials and stuff. You have to open up each individual, each flap, and then there's buttons and dials and stuff underneath. Um, the time rotor, which isn't really there because it's the secondary console room. It's like a little mirror. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And it works so well with, um, with Tom's like burgundy aesthetic uh it, it's just gorgeous it's it's the console room which sarah jane leaves in leela gets introduced in i love this console room i remember um when i when i watched the deadly assassin for the first time goodness knows how many years ago thinking god that's pretty that's a that's that's a gorgeous gorgeous console room and then you move on um watching the mask of mandragora and you know the first the first episode where it's unveiled and the doctor oh do you know what let's go over here oh it's great it's great I love it I absolutely love it and I think it's a shame that it doesn't last that long because it is only that one season I believe and then we're back to back to kind of boring white and meh we literally take what I think is a massive step back all that money spent on a gorgeous gorgeous console room for you know season 15 just to bring back the white and the boring and it's a shame it does coincide with uh philip hinchcliffe leaving of course so obviously graham williams's new tenure the doctor doesn't have the burgundy coat anymore it's a more kind of cream coat the fourth doctor goes through a bit of a personality change for the next three years and the tardis interior just looks a bit boring and in and, and comparison i guess you know for itself it's ugh, it's fine it's there it's it's white, it's roundels, it's the console itself is a bit more silver than it is white. There's a bit more fancy dials and buttons and all the usual boring stuff, but it just, it isn't great. It's a massive step down. And what's a shame is that sticks around for the rest of the fourth Doctor's time 
and into um into the what do you call it? What's his name? Fifth Doctor's time. <clears throat> it's a bit of a shame. Season twenty, we get a slightly new. I'm so sorry. Uh, interior. Uh, it's just a bit brighter. The rindles are yellow instead of white. The time water in the middles a lot redder, which is nice. There's a lot more kind of um, uh, asymmetry to the design of the console, which is really really nice, which is good. Um, it's certainly an improvement, but it's not great. And then, in the fiftieth anniversary special, fiftieth, in the twentieth anniversary special, the main actual console unit takes a huge upgrade and i mean huge it becomes huge it's now something that you kind of have to walk around and fly around and uh, the, the it's it's a lot bigger in terms it's deeper it's wider it's longer and uh, there is a lot of layers going on which is really really cool it's, it brings it right into the 80s which it really needed uh, does it look dated now of course it does it doesn't look timeless and that's my problem with a lot of the classic. Other than the 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 console used for season fourteen, none of them are timeless. They all date, and they all date quite badly. Apart from that gorgeous wooden finish, it is absolutely beautiful. And then we come to, I think, one's got to argue until the most recent, until until fourteen and fifteen's TARDIS. The best TARDIS design, full stop. The interior that was used for the Eighth Doctor in the TV movie. It's huge. It's absolutely massive. Like, it is, it's gorgeous and it's huge and it's, they didn't go, let's make it 90s. They rather cleverly went with, well, let's go for a kind of anachronistic. So it's, it's, the, it's wooden. Again, the main console is wooden. It's got huge, like, metal arches coming over the, over the side of it, the kind of look from certain angles make it look a little bit Dalek-y. Uh, not dissimilar from what they use for 13's TARDIS. Um, the time water itself is a huge column now, not just kind of a little cylindrical bubby up and down that just goes above your head. It's huge, like there's the sense of scale and, oh, it's absolutely beautiful. What I also love about this is that the, the, con the, the console unit is in the middle of, you know, what you could tell would be a typical TARDIS set, which is encumbered by the big, like Dalek-y things. And then you've got an entire room around it, a library, a, a gate, which is again, you know, the, the big and wooden and timeless. It is timeless. And it's, it's not often Doctor Who manages that. And I think one of the absolute singing praises of the movie, other than Paul McGann, is the actual TARDIS itself because it is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. It is the it is it is a big big step between classic and and modern. Speaking of which, and also this is one of those when I saw the movie for the first time, I was just like, "Whoa, this thing's huge!" But now we have the TARDIS, the TARDIS, which I think of as the TARDIS, which I think a whole generation of people will think of as the TARDIS. And that is the choral theme used by 9 and 10. And it's, it's magnificent. 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10 roundels. Uh, the roundels are back, of course. On the, on the sides, they're kind of more hexagonal, but they are there. Uh, it's, it's such a... 
um, I think they kind of they say grunge and organic and all that stuff. Like the court, the columns are beautiful. Uh, the 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 time water in the middle is is probably the only bit that's dated a bit. That does look a little bit cheap nowadays. But again, it was two thousand five, so fine. Um, in general, I think it hasn't aged well because it looks like a bunch of plastic wires have been shoved in places with some lights. It does look like that. But you know, it's still, it's still, it's the TARDIS, man. It's this, this to me is the TARDIS. Uh, it's beautiful. It's you know the green, the kind of bronze. Again, quite Dalek-y If you look at the, if you look at the inside of the TARDIS, it's very Dalek-y. Uh, I think the little ramp leading up to the main console is pretty cool. Uh, obviously, the Ninth Doctor has a lot of fiddling about with it. The Tenth Doctor uses it a lot, like the little. Like the gratings on the floor that, that come up and you can go in and there's stuff in there. I love it. I absolutely I, I love this TARDIS. I really, really do. But I've got to tell you, my reaction <clears throat> when Amelia Pond stepped into the huge and vibrant and gorgeous 11th Doctor TARDIS set, I was blown away. I think this is it's the repurposed Torchwood Hub, for those that don't know. So at the end of, I mean, I was about to say spoilers. I mean, this was 15 years ago. But yeah, yeah, yeah spoilers, I suppose. Um, at the end of Series 2, the Tortured Hub gets blown up. Series 2? Series 3? Series 2? 3? Oh, series 2? I don't know. At some point, the Tortured Hub gets blown up. Um, and instead of just destroying the set, they repurposed it for the 11th Doctor set as such, because the Tortured Hub itself was designed to have, you know, no matter where you put the camera, there was something new to see. That's what happens with the TARDIS. And I think that is that is the, the concept that I think has stuck, other than 13. And it's a concept I think is absolutely right for the TARDIS interior. I really, really do. Again, the orange, it's bright. The green is still there. We've kind of kept the color scheme, but it's all a lot brighter. Uh, there's stairs going to left, right, up, down. There's, you know, the, 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 the bit underneath the main console, which the Doctor goes and does fiddlings with. Um, the rimdles are there, but they're very variable and kind of all over the shop, and some are scanners, but you can't really tell. The actual consoles themselves, is this not the one that has, like, the, the ketchup and mayonnaise? But I can't remember. Yeah. The actual like panels themselves, when you look closely, don't look like much. It's all the stuff that's around them and on them and beside them. There's a little bit of the coral still there. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's quite good. Again, we've kind of gone for the anachronistic feel of the movie one because I know he's got he's got the that like old, really really old fashioned phone. Um, anyway, yeah. So I was gobsmacked with that, but nowhere near as gobsmacked as I was with the next TARDIS. The next TARDIS was my favourite for a long, 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 long time. Um, doesn't really change much between 11 and 12, but the change it gets is huge. So, Joe, it's interesting. Actually, looking at, looking at the TARDIS as it was in Series 7, it's not great. I don't like the, the central... Yeah, I don't like the fact that the, the the kind of central the central the six panels are very twentieth anniversary. 
very that's a massive step back and not in a good way the con of the i mean the, the main thing with this was the rotating um the rotating like bits at the top of the time war but this this looks very boring and bare and bland and as such i'm just gonna i'm just gonna jump straight to how it looks with there we go with the eighth with the eighth doctor with the twelfth doctor turn the lights down and what a difference it's moodier, the roundels are back, there's books all over the shop, there's stairs, the panels look, I mean, I don't think they've changed in any way, shape or form, but they look different, they look better. Yeah, apart from new furniture and colour changes, it is exactly the same, but it doesn't look it, it doesn't feel it, it feels interesting and kind of mystical and dark and interesting, he's got the chalkboard, oh, I, lo I love, I love Twelve's variation on that TARDIS, I absolutely adore it. A uh, little shout out to the War Doctor's TARDIS, I suppose, which was, I mean, absolutely designed to be a mix of, uh, like the classic and and the new. Um, so it's kind of it's more circular in the middle. It's starting to get grungy and corally. I think it's actually got some coral columns in it, but it's got the roundel, like the proper classic roundels at the back. I don't, I don't particularly like it. I think it's fine, but uh. I mean, it doesn't really get a lot of a, a lot of a shoe, but I think if we were stuck with that for a whole season or two, you'd get sick of it pretty quickly because it's it's designed to be an an anniversary special. Uh, right, and then we come to the thirteenth Doctor's TARDIS. Um, I don't like it at all. At all, it doesn't have a single redeeming feature for me. I don't like the color scheme. I don't like the fact that we go from big to tiny and cramped. Like I said, I don't think the TARDIS interior should ever be cramped in any way, shape, or form. Um, I I don't like the kind of orange crystals that, that it makes it makes the set smaller rather than bigger. And anything to make the TARDIS inside look smaller to me is just just not not great. It's not great for me. Uh, I mean, the roundels are still there. I mean, I've just had a look at like the whole thing. And it's, the problem is, it's a small set. And it shouldn't be. It just shouldn't be. The orange isn't great. Like, I'm trying, I'm trying to find a, a decent photo of, of the actual like console itself, and there isn't one. Like, ah, there we are. One, two, three, four, five. At least they kept six. But like, there, there's nothing there. It's just like, like, literally, there's nothing there. There's next to no dials. There's there's like a there's like a handle here or there. Uh, it's just not it's not good. It's just not good. It is not a good design. It's really not. But do you know what? I think a lot of Chibnall's era from kind of top to bottom. I think I think failed in pretty much every way. But it's important to see that Doctor Who isn't infallible, and you know, regardless of your opinions of 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 any era of, of like, I think every era of Doctor Who has its fans and its haters, and that's fine. Like, that's absolutely fine. Maybe haters is a strong word. Um, there are you know eras that are universally generally loved, eras that are generally universally not loved, but will have their lovers. For example, the Sixth Doctor's era and the Thirteenth Doctor's era, not particularly well liked. Um. 12 and 11, like Stephen Moffat's entire run is, is pretty hit and miss for some people. Also, T. Davis's run is at the moment hit and miss for some people. I don't really understand why. It's beyond stunning. 
Um, like Hinchcliffe's run was generally, you know, perceived as, as Doctor Who's golden era. Uh, Barry Letts's his run was perceived pretty well. I'm not a big fan of that at all. Yeah, so it's one of those. Every every era is going to have hits and misses. I've got my opinions. You have your opinions, which is amazing. Now, to get to my favourite TARDIS interior, the current one, it's huge, it's white, it's beautiful, it's massive. The Doctor runs around it. It's everything I want a TARDIS to be, and it is just huge. The six panels, we are, it's, it's proper, like, high. It's 2020. It's 2020s. It brings the TARDIS modern and future at the same time. It doesn't go for anachronistic. It goes for, you know, you can tell the Doctor who finally has a proper budget and it looks sensational each each panel has got dials and buttons left right and center but they're not like cheap plastic like i'm literally looking at three things that are like interesting shapes that they've got blue buttons on them and a yellow one i'm also seeing two women car like car heaters but that's fine it's doctor who it's like random stuff like that's always going to be in there the time war is itself gorgeous just the the fact that there are like this is going to be one of those where it's not really going to be a case of you can put the TARDIS any the, the camera anywhere and you'll get an interesting new look, but it's just the possibilities are endless. There are doors to um to multiple multiple different places and things, right? Who knows? The the opportunities are endless and it is beautiful. So if I were to pick my favorite, like I said, it's a hundred percent going to be the current iteration of the TARDIS. I love the current iteration of the Doctor. I love the current iteration of the TARDIS. I'm not overly keen on his outfit, but it suits him very well. I, as I said last time, I despise the sonnet, the current sonnet screwdriver, but you can't get everything right, and that's okay. That's fine. Not everything is going to please everyone. Do your best, and it'll be golden. So that is kind of the main, that's the main part of the podcast for today. So we will now move on to... The stuff that's happening in the life of Sean, what we're reading, what we're watching, what we've been playing. So reading-wise, we started uh, Doctor Who and the Seeds of Doom. And I mean started. I think I got half a half a chapter in. And oh, it's just utter boring. So we stopped. Uh, started the Golden Compass, the first one. What's it called? I can't remember. It's fine. I mean, we're about, we're about like, again, half a page in. Um, but the big thing that the big two things that we've been that we've been reading, uh, first one is let's have a little look is Oliver Twist by the wonderful Charles Dickens, uh, which um, is is brilliant. Is honestly absolutely brilliant. Um, it's it does more than I thought it could do. In the sense that really, I guess my expectations were, I mean, they're really non-existent. I've never read any Charles Dickens before, uh, but it's it's so funny. Like, it is so funny and so eloquently written, and the, the language is beautiful, and but you get a lot of context clues, so you don't really need to think about, you know, what does this word mean and that word mean, because a lot of the time, let's see, you're getting, you're getting it in context. But he's just he's just so so beautiful with the way he uses his words and in the chapter we just read for a couple of chapters in um oliver it describes it describes in a really pleasant like really really dark humor way um 
Oliver getting like beaten up by by the by the workhouse and being starved by the workhouse and it's as you read it and and you chuckle and you go oh ha, 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 oh my goodness like this is an awful situation for him to be in but gosh he's written that so well it's so 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 funny and it's also really interesting seeing the way he like seeing the way he writes and the way Simon Callow portrays him in the Doctor Who episode, The Unquiet Dead. Uh, I've got to say, I <laughs> I like that episode a lot more now that I've read some Dickens. Uh, Simon Callow's perfection, and Mark Gatiss writes him beautifully. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, Oliver Twist is amazing. If you've never read it before, I would, I would highly recommend giving it a go. Uh, I also read the 15th Doctor's audition script, uh, which was released today. And it's astonishing. We've got the like the spike master or the spike lord or whatever, um, and it just shows it just showcases exactly who the new doctor is, in a in a wonderful zany. You know, he's he's bouncy. He's smiling in the face of danger, and then it like there's a point where, um, there's a point where the the spike master. It's like, oh, you know, Doctor Who, ha, ha, ha. And the doctor goes, yeah, 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 heard that before. But you're not. So <clears throat> the premise is, is that the Doctor is locked in this room with a character called Robin, um, who turns out to be the villain of, of the piece. Uh, the Doctor figures this out about page six of eight and says, but you're not Robin, are you? Because Robin's on the other side of that wall because you've killed him and he's cold, and he's dead, and that's because of you. And then the spike master said, oh, ha, 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 how did you figure it out? Whole thing. <clears throat> um, things happen, the Doctor gets out, and the big thing for me that's in the script, which I am psyched to see Shooty do in, uh, in season one, is... <laughs> he kind of... He says... I should show you mercy and I should be kind and let you out. Goodbye. Like, just sensational. And then the actual companions there and the doctor goes, oh, hi, yeah, absolutely fine. How are you? Let, let, let's go, let's go do some stuff. Like, like, like he hasn't just killed someone. Like, straight up killed someone. Like, there's no ambiguity there. The doctor killed someone. Oh, and I love, I love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. It's like, there are somehow already complaints after one bloody episode that shoot his doctors too happy. It's just utter nonsense. There is obvious, like, every doctor will have darkness. This is a new doctor. And not even just an because of a generator. This is a brand new doctor. He is literally taken like that rick and morty episode he's taken all the talks not toxic traits but like all the all that baggage is now sitting with 14 but it's all kind of it's all dissipate all of it's kind of been let go and what we are left with is a doctor who is almost completely starting from scratch but uh, i think you would be remiss to think that this doctor isn't going to have an unbelievable dark side because Tom Baker's doctor fucking snaps someone's neck. <laughs> he straight up snaps someone's neck. And he was the, you know, I'm going to smell in the face of danger. But that's the doctor you don't want to be trapped in a room with. 
that's the doctor you absolutely you are terrified of that doctor because what's under the smile sort of thing. I don't I don't I, I don't know if that's where Russell's going to take this particular version, but uh oh, he's brilliant, it's absolutely brilliant. I recommend giving that a little read as well if uh, if you feel inclined on the BBC website. Uh, only real thing that I've been watching this week is I've started watching a lot of long form, uh, like cutscenes from video games that I that I've been that I've played and that I just kind of want to get caught up on the story. The main one being Kingdom Hearts, uh, which in itself is you know almost a hundred hours of cutscenes, and I'm I'm getting there. It's fine. It's good. You know, keeps me entertained. Finish Arkham Knight, video game wise. Uh, brilliant, brilliant twists in the end. Love the idea. Love. I just like yeah. I, full spoilers for a game that came out ten years ago. Obviously, you find out that Arkham Knight is Jason Todd. Uh, Batman eventually gets cured of the of the thing that's had the Joker in his brain the whole time, and it looks like he's going to retire, which is quite nice. Um, my Nuzlocks. Uh, I've started. I I I failed my silver one pretty quickly. I got up to the second gym leader, and then Bugsy absolutely wiped me out. Uh, I'm currently on a on the crystal nuzlocke, and I think I've just beaten Bugsy. I can't quite remember where I'm up to. Um, I was doing a shining pearl nuzlocke as well, and got my arse absolutely handed to me by the first trainer in Vork's gym. My problem was I'm kind of trying to switch train up Magikarp and all of these, and think that's the thing I'm going to have to try and stop doing. Because I, I switched into Magikarp when it died and then switched into a budget as Geodude was on like a maximum rollout. So every, everything just got absolutely trampled. Uh, and I literally this morning started uh, Legends Arceus Nuzlocke. Um, haven't got anywhere yet, so I haven't even picked my starter. But, um, well, that's a plan for later on. And with that, I think we are done. So thank you again for listening to this podcast. Um, if you would like to get in touch, you can do on uh, Gmail. So Gmail is the uh, the SGD Show podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube as the SGD Show podcast, uh, where the video will be there. To feel free to put a comment there as well. Uh, I'm also on TikTok as the SGD Show. There's also my Patreon as well, the SGD let me know your thoughts on the episode in general, uh, what you thought about it, what you thought about all sorts of things, structure, audio quality, content. Uh, but I guess most importantly, what are what are your first memories of a TARDIS? Mine's was Ninth Doctors. What is your favourite? Why is it your favourite? Are there any which you straight up dislike and don't like? Like, for example, I... I don't like the war doctors at all i don't like the the third doctor's console in the slightest yeah let me know if you wish let me know take care and i'll see you next time on the sjd show